everyone, and welcome to Operation History, where history is more than what you remember. Today, the virtual table is full, as all four guests are in the house. For those of you who are new to the show, your hosts are Derek. Hello. David. Hello, everyone. Maria. Hello. And I'm Lauren. Today is a special day for Operation History because we get to have our second official guest on the show. For today's episode, David has called in a field expert and has invited a college professor to come and chat with us today. So without further ado, I will hand the mic over to David so that he can introduce our special guest. Good evening, everyone. So our special guest for today is the one and only Dr. Ender. Dr. Ender has taught in the education field and the history field for at least 10 years now, spanning all throughout the North, uh, Northeast area, has taught in middle school, high school, and it's also taught and teaches now in a college profession, but I am not one to speak for our guests entirely. So Dr. Ender, is there anything that I missed out that you would like to add in for our friends out there? I cannot grow a beard. I'm sorry. I know it. I tried. This is two years strong, and I would think that the time away from being in person would help, you know, thicken the beard. But it has not been a success. You mean grow out, grow out the stress beard? <laughs> <laughs> this is five. This is five years of of beard in the making. So it ta- it takes okay. some time. Well, I might I may have to get your secrets then. I'll send you an email with some secrets in there. Oh my God. <laughs> So today is also a unique episode because typically we do research on a topic and we present it to you all after research, but this is different because it's going to be a free flow conversation. The central theme for today is American perspective. So all five of us are going to take that wording and we can put it in our own spin way, um, American perspective in education in real world and what we experience. So we're going to be using research we've done, personal experience, what we've seen, what we've heard. So it's going to be a unique episode and I'm going to stop stealing Dr. Ender's spotlight. So Dr. So Dr. Ender, American perspective, all you. All me. All right, let's see. I'm going to bore everybody by going off on a tangent. Yay. No, no, it's not going to be a tangent. It's more of a just a, 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 pers- a context so that everybody out there in radio land can understand where I'm coming from or podcast land. Um, I have a very complex view since I can remember or complex views just because of who I am, where I grew up, how I grew up, uh, what I've studied. And so um, to, to put it to put it in a very uh, uh, simple way. For everybody who likes it simple. Um, I, I'm a child of somebody who's indigenous, a child who's also somebody of somebody who's also European. So I have the best of both worlds, I guess, of seeing American history through a lens of indigeneity and also through um, a European lens. And my mother was indigenous um, from South America. My father is Italian German. So you know, growing up with the different languages, the different cultures, I, I got, I, you know, I'm, I can cultural shift. I, 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 I can pay attention to different situations and react differently. And, and so this idea of, you know, 
what is America is so complex to me and it, and it really feeds into what I do as a, as I, as a teacher and as an educator and as a human being and so forth. So um, a lot of it for me just solves around culture. I'm not really a historian, even though I, I have a position of teaching history. I'm, I'm a more of a cultural studies kind of person. I, I, I wish we had cultural studies where I'm at, but we don't. Um, but I, I'm all about cultures. We all have very different cultures that we bring in and then throw on top of that different identities of the different spaces we work in. So it's just like, it's very complicated. It's very complex. And I've always had issue with teaching it, uh, teaching American history in simple ways, because it's not simple. Everything is very complex. And I think my, my students who take my class right now, we're doing, we're learning history through music and how music artists have responded to, to different events, going back to the Irish coming over from Ireland during the uh, Great Famine to the post-civil rights movement. It's just, there's music everywhere. So, you know, when you draw that in, I, I, I just like to muck it up. I like to, to really go off the, the path of what a lot of high school, middle school teachers do, which is teach by the book. And I, I don't do that. So for all of you who teach by the book, I'm sorry, try something different. We're sorry that you're wrong. Try again next time. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so that's that's my sort of my soliloquy to start off. I think for for those who listen and are teachers, uh, American history or social studies, whatever you want to call it, wherever you are, or if I don't know if you have international listeners where they teach a particular brand of history or social studies, I I think I think you have to you have to understand who you're teaching and where the students are coming from and how they're, they're bringing their own perspectives into your classroom and in turn, um, how do you allow them to question and ask um, away things that they may not understand or comprehend and so forth. So I don't know, I, I do that with some, with some success. I've also run into some walls, but I think if you, if you, if you challenge, you're gonna run into some resistance, so mm -hmm. yeah. All right, that wraps it up. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> this was fun. Good night, everyone. All right. Welcome again. <laughs> uh, to, to bounce off of what Dr. Ender was just saying, I, I definitely agree. Um, there's a lot within, especially things like American history, that I think that we could definitely improve on as educators. Um, I feel that there's times that we we kind of lose sight either because of how the curriculum's worded or how people are kind of pushing for something and we lose sight of what is really we should be teaching um, as far as, you know, a, a wide ranged education, something that, you know, encompasses everyone, not just, you know, white Anglo-Saxon males coming over, uh, you know, <laughs> in, you know, uh, the start of the revolution, there, there was so much more to it than that. But due to curriculum restraints and due to administrators, sometimes it gets kind of bogged down with, you know, if you true, like, like Dr. Ender was saying, if you try to push back, sometimes you get some slap back from that. And it's, it's something I think we need to work on as a whole as educators um, to kind of put that in check and at least test those boundaries of, hey, you know, I want to say something more about Indigenous people. Hey, I want to say more about LGBTQ rights. You know, 
I think testing the waters is the best way that we can get that expansion of ideas and perspectives out there. And so just to kind of add from a different perspective, because I work in the museum um, system and we have, um, I think all of our listeners basically would know where I work at this point. Um, where do you work? So I work at formerly known as Plymouth Plantation. Oh. Um, it's now known as Plymouth Patuxent Museums. Um, and I was just gonna say, because in the, mu in the museum world, we part of our goal is to bring that indigenous voice to the forefront. And I mean, I don't know if it's because it's not taught in schools or people are, I mean, and people are just naturally ignorant. Some of them go whole into the racism thing. Um, one of the reasons why we changed our name is because so many people say, why is it called plantation? You know, did they have slaves? Yes, they were black pilgrims, but that's a different story for a different day. Um, but Patuxent is the Wampanoag word. Well, Plymouth is the English word for Patuxent. Patuxent is the, where Plymouth, Massachusetts is today. And we wanted as a museum to highlight, yes, there were people here. There are still Wampanoag people here. And people, oh my God, like it's been like a year and they're like, I can't even pronounce that. What's even the point? I'm like, <laughs> because we don't want people to come up and say, why is it called plantation? We want people to come up and say, what's Patuxent mean? And it goes right into the heart of our story of people that have been here for 12,000 years. Um, and people are just so ignorant. I mean, they just come through and they're like, yeah, so they landed on Plymouth Rock and started America. Like, I mean, my coworkers, we joke, we're like, yep, Christopher Columbus came over on the Mayflower and signed the Declaration of Independence and <laughs> we got a new world. But I mean, I work, it, it hurts because it's true. Like I worked at a different site than I do right now. And that's basically what people were asking me. I was there, no, uh, but like, Whereas like people, I mean, they just say Nina Pinta and Santa Maria. I'm like, listen to what you just said. It's the Mayflower. We're, we're the Mayflower. <laughs> um, and people just, I mean, they just completely disregard the indigenous voice. They don't understand the complete genocide that happened for you to be able to, I, I was gonna say something probably controversial and that's where religion but um i was gonna say so that you can fly your blue thin line but that's fine yep yep derek i went there but lauren out of curiosity do they not ask uh appropriate and respectful indigenous related questions because as uh, how do I, I put this? How do I put this respectfully? As as in in K through twelve schooling, you really don't get a respectful indigenous side of that story, and I I feel like we haven't been taught to respect indigenous races. So it's almost like people don't have the correct tools in their arsenal to ask appropriate questions. Uh, people will go down. To, so it's called the Wampanoag Home Site, uh, where I work. Um, Right now, we do not have any Wampanoag Indigenous people because it's hard. You need to have, I mean, and that's a whole different issue, mm -hmm. um, our lack of Indigenous people. Um, but I mean, I've been down there just like hanging out with like work friends and they're in the regalia. Um, 
if you're indigenous, you can wear the regalia. And people are like, I like your costume, or where's John Smith? Or are you Pocahontas? Or just the most racist things you've ever heard. Um, one Wampanoag person that I work with, he's Cherokee, uh, got asked if he was a caveman. And he said, no, I'm a um, Native American. And the woman responded with, oh, so you're one of them Indians. People are, they do the um, war cries. They ask what your spirit animal is. They ask what your Indian name is. Um, there's a lot of, uh, so you, like, the English basically came in and civilized you. Um, even the oldest story in the book is Squanto learned how to plant, taught the English how to plant corn using fish as fertilizer. People, there's a huge, there was a huge outbreak about 10 years ago. Of, no, that was English. English taught the Native people how to plant corn, even though in 1620 yeah yeah um in 1620 there was not corn in england yet because they didn't want it um i work at a corn mill as everyone knows so i, I know that more than the average bear but it's just it's ridiculous and you i know. don't blame the teachers i blame the curriculum i just blame i mean i don't know well, that, that I will happily step in and blame the teachers that I worked with for all the years. They, I appreciate uh, David mentioning that I spent over 10 years teaching before I became an esteemed professor. Um, I, I taught middle school and high school, and I could tell you easily that nobody ever, or never say never, because Justin Bieber taught me that once, but <laughs> I rarely, if ever, saw any introductions or in in um, implementation of any lessons that centered the indigenous perspective mm -hmm. in these social studies classrooms. And never, and I taught in a number of states in the US and it never happened. And so I remember distinctively, I had one class and this was in the South and um, it was, they were um, eighth graders and I loved them and it was pretty diverse. And I'm talking about diverse in terms of uh, racial, ethnic, um, et cetera identities. And so I started talking about um, um, a couple of the different tribes of that particular state. And some of the students said, you know, I've never had, I've never even had a, a, a lesson about the, the Native Americans that existed in our state. And then some other students were like, I've, I've never been comfortable sharing that my mother's actually part, whatever uh, tribal nation they belong to. And I, and I would, you know, play I would you know you know me I would just go along and say well, well tell me why and a lot of times they would say oh because our teachers were never interested or they didn't want us to talk about it so I firmly place it on the teachers that I worked with who did not want to introduce it or talk about it and so I I I, I think of all the colleagues I've had and <laughs> I would I would say on one hand I could count those who actually were like yeah let's talk about the Native American perspective during, you know, the Revolutionary War era, the Native American perspective during the Civil War era, or wh whatever time period you want to look at. And I'm not just going to shit on the South because I spent 15 years of my life living down there. I loved it. But it's it's also New England. It's also in the Northeast. It's out West. It's a everywhere. So. A yeah, a lot of people don't even seem to realize that Massachusetts is named after the Massachusetts tribe. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, it's a lot of, I think my sophomore year of high school, she kind of opened things up with like, this is, you know, Pocahontas, like that's not a thing. Like this is where her history has gone bad. Um, but I mean, I mean, at least at the institution that we have gone to, I wish there was some sort of indigenous studies. Cause I feel I, like that's yeah, not I, there. So I mentioned, I mentioned that history class that I teach using music and I have one student who was graduating as a senior this past spring. And that student mentioned to me how we talked about um, a couple of different um, indigenous artists responding to the events of the time. And that student said, I wish there were more professors. And I said, I, you know, I, I, can only, I can only encourage students to start questioning things with what I'm presenting to them and all that. I, I don't speak for anybody else. I mm -hmm. definitely, you know, I, I'm like, listen, I don't care what anybody else does. I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm from New Jersey. I don't care what everybody else does. <laughs> I'm just that obnoxious. But she said to me, you know, I wish, I wish very similar to what you just said, Lauren, I wish there was a, a, a greater presence of native students on, on yeah. campus. And I'm like, um, some sort of organization or classes. I know I took from like, we had to take like an art gen ed and I took music of non-Western worlds and it did go into the indigenous stuff, which was really cool. Um, but that was like a one oh. God knows what, like that was a very low level course, unfortunately. Um, but yeah. And, and not, only, not only that, I'm just gonna, so when I was subbing, um, students were curious about Native American movement, the Native American movement during the 1960s. And we ended up talking about some of the past events. So like states not, so states ignoring trees that were signed by the US government and how the modern day movement was based off past past things and i gave the students free reign what movements you want to learn about and overwhelmingly the number one was native american movement so it's not even just curriculum stuff it's students are also interested in learning this stuff and i think the curriculum and our style of teaching needs to reflect what students actually want to learn they want to learn about these issues and they want to learn about the land's history not just their ancestral history as well. So to go back off of uh, what Dr. Ender had said before, I think that a lot of people are hesitant to talk about things like indigenous people, like uh, a lot of the more uh, not so happy parts of American history because it paints America in a bad light. And some people are really scared to talk about those things because it's not an easy topic to go through. Of course, yeah, they all love talking about the revolution and all these fun little things in American history, World War II, ooh, look at all, we're, we're doing great. But anytime that puts America in a negative light, that brings up a time where you have to discuss with kids, hey, nothing is like infallible. There's always problems that we actually have to discuss with like our students and our peers, mm -hmm. because if we don't discuss this, we're not going to get past this. Then we're you're going, going to, to show repeating. up with my museum and say something deeply racist. And then you're going to be the talk of the museum for the next week and a half. <laughs> don't be that guy. <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> Haven't heard much from Maria. Let's let's. Yeah. Maria, what, what's, what's on, what's your, mind, on girl? your mind? 
Um, to kind of piggyback off of what you said, you're a hundred percent correct. And I feel this is just me being me. This is my own personal two cents. I feel like this country has a really hard time accepting some of the darker parts of its past. And uh, you kind of hit the nail right on the head, Derek. You beat me to it. They don't want to talk about anything that puts America in a negative light. And people, they want, I feel like people, when they talk about history, especially American history, they want this squeaky clean, nice picture, perfect in a box type version of history and no version of history is squeaky clean. History is dark. And I think for another thing, they want anytime there's an individual who's elevated for doing something good or a celebrated individual, it's almost like that individual gets put in a black and white concept. They're either all good or they're all bad. And it's like, listen, if, if it was that easy, the world would be a different place. Sometimes people were shitty people and they did good things. Sometimes good people did shitty things or, you know, sometimes they really were a crap person. It's not easy. Nothing is black and white. Everything is a shade of gray. And I feel like, you know, you could pick a handful of examples where people want to get on about a, a, a historical figure's case. And it's like, yes, I get it. You're right. You're valid. That was a very crappy thing they did, but they're not all terrible either. They're a complicated figure. 90% of history's people are complicated figures. It That's just me. It reminds me of the phrase that's kind of been circulating on, especially Twitter lately, just history should make you uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. um, I'll do some Googling because I remember probably on the Operation History Twitter somewhere, I retweeted it with the mounds of things that I do on Twitter. Um, but it like you said, Maria, it's almost like the founding fathers, they're so mythologized that I remember it was a few years ago, Thomas Jefferson in particular, everyone just kind of was like, he's shit. And I was right. like, he actually, okay, they, yes, they were- you're correct, but he, it's but, like, yes, he made this incredible document, but he sucked. He had yes. slaves. Yes, correct. Yes, he was correct. And that- Maybe Hamilton? They, well, the founding fathers Don't in general- Don't get me started on Hamilton. Yeah, let's not let's not touch Hamilton today. We we rag on Hamilton for good reasons all the time. <laughs> but they're kind of who I was really thinking of more or less, especially if you're going to talk about from an American perspective. The founding fathers and revolutionary figures are so celebrated and in this American mythology that to talk to talk about them in any kind of negative way, it's considered anti-American or, you know, and now almost even to put them on a pedestal and talk about them like they're the greatest people on the planet. It's also anti-American. And it's either like, way you are making the bad decision. But it's almost like guys, we need to find that middle ground. We need to find the real, we need to find the real perspective here. And I think it's like you said, you know, yeah, like Thomas Jefferson. He did shit things and he was sometimes a shitty person or more or less a shitty person, but he wrote this really great thing. Right. He, he had did a great good. idea. Well, you know, yeah, I agree with Derek. You can't it, see Derek. It's, Derek's, it's, it's, it's a conglomeration of everything that has come before him. And he, he took he was he, he was the 3 a.m. fueled college student going, hey, I've read five other reports that look similar to similar what I need to, to write. One. And I'm just gonna combine them all together. I and then just, hope I don't I was get just gonna plagiarized. say he, he took a lot of ideas from a lot of his other colleagues and, and people who were around. Right. Wait, him. you're saying Wikipedia is not a valid resource resource <laughs> tool of like Oliver Cromwell? Because so since I work somewhere that is predominantly it's very congregationalist, all of our kind of people, obviously, because they're Puritans. Um, we're looking at the Puritans, we're looking at the pilgrims, and they just put 
they were like, look at Oliver Cromwell. Isn't he great? He's the best. And I'm like, I am so Irish. I completely disagree. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. they're like, yeah, he did the thing in Ireland and he was great. And I was like, yeah, that thing in Ireland. Remember that? Oh. Do we remember that? You know, you mean when your pe- when Irish people were completely decimated because Cromwell was a complete piece of garbage? Yeah, but then he about. was like a man's man. I'm like, yeah, cool. Sweet. Mm. So was a former president of ours, and I'm not very happy that that happened either. Also, too. I'm talking about Lincoln. Clear <laughs> oh, I was like, wait, what are you talking about? Um, also, too, to kind of, you know, shift away from a Native American perspective, a lot of times, too, especially in a K through 12 system, you very rarely get to hear about any kind of history that doesn't have to do with either anything that had to do with the Americans or the British or any kind of European perspective. I know like when I was in K through 12, I didn't hear about any Native American history. I didn't hear about any indigenous Africa, Africa history. I had no Asian history, no South American history, unless it was, this is how Europeans or Americans had dealings with them. Other than that, there was no there was no course just for them. And even unfortunately, like sometimes in a college perspective, unless we're talking about colonization, you still don't get that completely indigenous point of view. And it's like, no, there's there's another history here too that has nothing to do with the white man. I, I would say that um, from from my previous job experience, uh, my my district, the curriculum for the first year, um, so the, the little freshmen coming in, mm-hmm. uh, we had world history. Um, out of the entirety of world history, I'm genuinely trying to think, they learn about ancient China, mm-hmm. learn about ancient India, and like the little Mesopotamian civilizations. You know what, you know what, you know what the one, you know what the one word that you said was in each of those ancient. three, ancient, you hit the word right on the, yep. that's it, ancient. that's it, after that, and, that, and that's great, nothing. because I get that, because there's a lot of foundings of modern civilization found in those, in those civilizations and cultures, but it's nothing relevant that kids can relate to, and take it and apply it to a modern day broader context. Hmm. To, to the point where I had asked, um, one of my students who was at the point, a senior about to graduate. Um, Just a very simple question in in my civics class. Uh, What government does China have? Couldn't tell me that he thought, he thought, he thought that they had an emperor. Oh no. Because thousands of hundreds of thousands of years ago. Sure. Well, I mean, that dictator thinks he is an emperor, but that's besides the point. That, that's, <laughs> don't go down that road. We're not going to talk about she right here. Civic, you know? Civics is a whole other problem, though. That's, and, a, oh, like, that, that's a whole... It's, it's like, you know, <laughs> civics and geography, they don't even get covered half the no. time. It's disgusting. I, I When I taught eighth grade U.S. history, I would literally spend, and I mentioned this before, so you may have heard of it, I've meant I would spend literally two to three weeks just going over every single U.S. constitutional amendment, like looking at the background information, learning about it, and how it manifests mm-hmm. manifests itself today. Mm-hmm. And I can say no other 
colleague of mine would do that. They were like, ah, mm. they can look it up or mm. ah, I got to follow the curriculum or ah, I don't have time for that. And I'm thinking it's the US constitution. It's what sets everything else into motion. But you're right, civics, it, generally speaking, because you know I would like to speak in generalities, generalities, excuse me, um, doesn't get all the, the the love that it needs to get. It, and frankly speaking, we are we, you are you are much younger than I am. Your generation is the generation that's been hit hardest with the lack of civics. The fact that mm. people don't understand how jury duty works or how voting works, and you see all these restrictive voting regulations all over the U.S. or all these different things, and people are like, okay, I'm like, you just can't be okay. You have to you have to dig deep, find out, learn more about it, but it just doesn't happen. And it kind um, of in the kind of piggyback off that, but also they don't understand the responsibility it carries by doing these things, like by how responsible it is for our republic and our democracy to vote. Why it's important to be a jury, like all, like none of that is covered in education, and that's the most important part. That's the foundational part of our you know what we have now it's being i got called for jury duty i just answered their questionnaire i might whatever that may be but it's for what we have here and that's an essential part of being a citizen and that's the other thing is when we talk about african-americans who have to do jury duty asian-americans who have to do jury duty native americans who are also performing jury duty when we talk about their citizenship it's guaranteed because they're doing the same civic duties that we have to do. And that makes them a citizen. They fight for this country. They vote for this country. They're a jury, jury person of this country. They are a citizen and no one can deny them that right. My own little tangent. <laughs> I, uh, thankfully, um, actually just towards the end of the school year. So like maybe I would say around June, um, Rhode Island did just vote in that every high school has to have a mandatory civics class. So that, that is a good thing that now everyone is mandated to have a civics class in their curriculum, uh, which I mean, growing up, I, I didn't have one. I never had one in my, my high school. I had to learn everything. Thankfully, I, I did have a very good uh, law teacher that I did take that kind of filled in that gap, but it was, it was a completely voluntary thing that, you know, if I didn't take it, I wouldn't know, you know, the basic ideas of, you know, constitutional law and how it works. I, I will say too, I went to school a hundred years ago and um, I did. And I remember uh, in my senior year, I took a law class as well. And it was, it was for, for the, the, they split it up between uh, one semester and two semesters, like when you came back from winter break. The first was law. The second part was like civil, like criminal versus civil. And the civil part, I don't remember much at all, but like for the, for the criminal law, all we did was watch movies as like examples. And they were, they were like Hollywood movies. And I'm not ragging on the teacher because that was one of my favorite classes, but that was not the way to teach that class. That was, yeah. And it's like, I hope if that's the case that the way they teach civics has improved. Cause like I said, it's been a hundred years since I was in, I was in a high school classroom. That's a whole other conversation, Hollywood and history. Oh, oh. We, could, we, could, we could do a dissertation on that. 
Well, I'm actually writing a chapter for an edited book right now as one of my pieces of research that looks at uh, particular movies and how they represent different parts of the world. And one area of the world that only gets negative attention is South America. So I'm looking at one movie and writing about how it can be taught in a K-12 setting. The problem is there, there's no room for it because it's never included. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it's roped into American foreign policy. That's the only time that South South That kind of goes back to what I was saying is anytime you learn about another continent's country, uh, wow, another continent's history, it's only about how the white man has impacted this or what foreign policy in Europe or America was, you know, dealt with it. You never get, or until I got to college, I never got those people or that nation's history through their own lens but not only not only that in kind of shift a little bit i mean it's like pioneer mentality we don't we only learn about people we don't learn about how the earth has changed or how we only talk about oh we had these cities and now we have these cities like okay what do we do to our cities to grow these what do we do to our our earth in order to make these things possible that's all glossed over in that we live on this earth. We live in that space where those events happen and we don't learn about human connection to the earth or human interaction. We just learn human to human. And the earth is that center, that connecting part between different people. I recommend 1491 if you want to see that in um, the Americas. I mean, it's not exactly what you're looking for, Um but it just definitely like there's one part that's looking at me that what they're trying to figure out if there's a city in the Amazon or what was going on there. Um, but it like goes more into the like, yeah, you guys didn't have quote unquote civilization, but you still did pretty damn well. <laughs> you had your civilization, just not the European version. But that, that, what, what you just said right there, that stereotype that there was no history before the white man got there, that is the stereotype that needs to change that, mm-hmm. you know, there wasn't anything worth writing or worth recording until Europeans got there. And that's, that's what that's, that's what needs to change. You know, I see that a lot with African history, because African history is something I really love to study. And my, the I, I owe it all to the professor at the school I go to, his passion really kind of ignited my passion for it. And whenever I talk about it, some of the things people say, it's the most racist or backwards, like it, it's almost disgusting some of the mindsets that people have. And I bring up that white man perspective because people will say that they'll be like, oh, there was there was history worth talking about before colonization. Yeah, there was uh, there was a lot of history worth talking about, and it's like I, I cringe. I want to just crawl in a ball and cringe when I hear that. It's how how narrow minded are people? Mm. I don't know. I'm sorry. That's my rant. Rant over. Everyone has to have a little rant tonight, you know. That that's that's. I'm due for <laughs> several. Mandatory. I'm due for several each <laughs> podcast, so I, I think I've hit my quota for today. So I'm done. Well, I, I think I think one of the tasks that our future educators have from this point forward is that, okay, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum, you have to recognize that the history, uh, the recent history that we've all experienced in the past couple of years, they're not all operating in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. 
they all have roots. And when you start digging deep into the roots of these events, you realize that they're further roots that you have, you just have to keep digging. It's almost, be, it almost becomes an archeological dig where you have, you have to find out why is this, okay, wait, this was happening. Wait, what, that was happening. And you just keep going and going. And I think, and this is my professional opinion, I think uh, the way social studies was organized in the early 20th century came out of the mindset of, you know, we are the winners of society of our, um, and our history needs to be reflective in some way. And other perspectives aren't really necessary, but we'll just sprinkle a little bit in just, you know, just so that they know they, they had a little bit of an influence. And so that idea has permeated now for over a hundred years. And I think what the events of the past couple of years have shown is that, wait a minute, hold on. Why aren't we, like all of you have said this, why haven't we been told about this? Or why haven't we been shown this? And now, you know, another professional opinion is that every time I taught something, I always presented the evidence. I say, okay, so here you are. Here are all these pieces of primary sources and reflections from the individuals who took part in these events. Now you tell me what you think. And all of a sudden you could hear just that collective Oh, oh, and I'm like, here you go. And I really, and I really encourage future educators, those who really want to become teachers. And, and you know, thankfully 2020 in, in a positive way has really revitalized the interest in history, but now we're seeing that pushback against history in a lot of different US states. And so that, that's normal. That's been happening for hundreds of years, that pushback from those in power. And so how do you then encourage and push those students to understand that what they're experiencing today has roots in the past? And how do you build upon that? Like, how do you continue to, you know, not everybody's gonna be a historian. You know, I, I didn't want to be a historian, but I somehow fell into it. But how do we encourage those who are not historians to keep understanding that what's happening today took, took place in the past and it's going to influence the future. And it's that past, present, future bit. Is that rhetorical or do you really want us to come up with something? No, I Because was... I kind of, <laughs> rhetorical? Okay. Well, just because there was like this collective silence. No, well, it's par for the course because usually when I go on a, on a soliloquy like that, I get the usual response of like, oh, you know, in class. Okay. Oh, okay. I think it's getting people to ask why, you know, if somebody who's in a position of power is trying to change the curriculum about history or doesn't want you to know such things, you should be asking why. Why don't you want me to know this? What are you trying to hide or what are you trying to alter? And maybe that's to conspiracy theorists of me or maybe that's too skeptical of me. But usually if someone if someone's trying to deny you facts or someone's trying to pull the wool over your eyes or sweep something under the rug, your first question should be why. I always question where it's coming from. So turn back to a previous president who's not our current president. When he came out with an educational commission, I actually had that saved and I started reading it. And on Twitter, at least, and some other places, there was a lot of conversation about it. And I read it and it's only that one point of view. So then my head got going, I was like, okay, why are we only focusing on this one side part and not the whole part, which is what history is about is you can't talk about one side because one side does not have all the key ingredients. You have to have both sides because both sides have the ingredients to make this singular event. This only has one event. So 
where's the other side of it? And thankfully that commission and that report got taken down right after that president left, but it's still, at least for that brief day or two, it gave some of us like what's going on and what is being missed here. And that's the other key part is we can't teach history from just one side, especially students don't want the one side. The students want all the tea. You can't just give them half the tea bag. You have to give them the entire tea in order to actually fully, one, enjoy it, but two, understand it. And that, at least as educators, what we all do, we have to make sure they understand it and someone enjoy it at the same time, which you need both sides for. Yeah, I mean, uh, when, when that uh, fun, fun little paper had come out, um, I was just starting to uh, teach uh, U.S. History 2, which starts right at the end of the Civil War and goes all the way into as far as you can get. Um, so I decided to start with a kind of, it was kind of a think piece on the, the remaining part of U.S. history. Um, I started it with a little TED Talk and it's the danger of a one-sided story um, because we have this idea of the Civil War and some people have a very different idea of that, that, that conflict. You know, there's people that think that it's a lot different and that it should be taught different. And I had referenced said commission in, in that teachings, as well as uh, the 1619 Project and a couple other, other different ideas that people wanted to talk about, all as a conjunction to reference saying we should use multiple sources and multiple ideas to get to the bottom of history. That being said, um, certain people take certain things to a very, very, very large amount of offense. Um, when you criticize something, even if it isn't meant as a criticism, when you bring it up and a child goes and tells a parent, that can cause problems. <laughs> uh, because a lot of people that I've found, it isn't, it's never the kids that are upset by learning this difficult history. It's a lot of the times the older generations that are worried about their perspective and ideal of America being changed. <laughs> yeah, I, I got a very interesting it's, email that next day. It's not <laughs> changed. It's not changed. It's challenged because you hit the nail right on the head. Mm. They've been told this one perspective and, and they've kind of, you know, we we've studied this. We've studied this that at certain times throughout history, people have been kind of taught to overly glorify their, their, there's a high sense of nationalism that has been carried throughout the United States, especially during peak times in history and generations from those times of high nationalism are still alive. So even if it's not a completely damning perspective of the USA, if it slightly challenges that highly nationalistic thought thought process, even if it's 100% correct, there's that pushback because it goes back to what we were saying earlier with that, that mythological perspective. Yeah, you know, it's interesting to, if, if any of you have ever lived in a different country other than the US, uh, and I'm talking about longer than three weeks vacation, I'm talking about months and months, 
thankfully I've had the opportunity to do that a couple of times. And what's interesting is that, yeah, I may have obviously I'm, uh, being American and, and growing up in the States, but when you go to other countries, they have their own mythologies where they're literally doing the same exact thing we're doing. So it's, you know, and, 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 and you know, both countries were in Europe, um, but it was interesting that in those two countries, they had a similar approach to the way history was illustrated and portrayed. And then it started, made, it's, it started to make me wonder if this is more of just like, you know, a European mindset because, um, you know, how, if, if you've been to a country in Asia or in Latin America, do they do something similar? And you know, I, I have family that live in Latin America and the stories that they share with me about how they learn history is very similar than what, you know, from what we learned here and so forth. You know, I'd be curious about how that, how that uh, happens. I wonder if it's that perspective that no matter what everyone else says, my places are right. And even though I know it's not the best, I can't let anyone else feel validated that I know it's trash. Like I have to put up this front that mine's okay to live in so other people can back off. I wonder if it's sort of that mentality. Not like, not tribalism, but this is my square. My square is great no matter what you say. It's just that, yeah, that exceptional, like that myth of exceptionalism um, and superiority, but it's also like the petty, like I can make fun of my brother, but like if you call him something that I'm going to beat you up, like one of those things. Like I can say America's stupid, but you can't say America's stupid. I mean, all of our international listeners, for me personally, you can call America stupid, but like there's so many like... People are, it's like, yeah, I'm a redneck. Oh, so you're a redneck? What? No, how dare you? Like, just stupid shit like that. But no, I mean, all this plays into America's per- perspective, though, is especially how I think as we go on and as we're introduced to different sources that are reliable, different political scenes, different educational resources and all that, our perspective doesn't change. It just gets more enlightened or things from the past that have been covered become uncovered. And I think, especially with older generations, they don't want to be proven wrong or they don't want to think that they were robbed of anything. And if new information comes out and not only discredits, but robs them of the education that they had and they don't want to feel like they lost that. So I think at least as us educators and historians or anyone, when new evidence comes out, the older generation pushbacks, not because they think that it's wrong, but because they don't want to feel like they, they were, were the wrong. fools, you know? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. Like, I definitely see that perspective. And then, I mean, my, like, mother and grandmother eat up the fact that I'm in history. And what my mom says all the time, she's like, I'm learning, like, what my country has done in the past from, like, myself and my brother she's like we didn't learn any of this like we didn't learn any of this stuff that you know she's like she feels that she should have been entitled to know about like um like the trail of tears or like imperialism and like the nitty-gritty gross stuff she's like we didn't learn any of this 
Because again, it was a time of highly, like all of our parents probably grew up around the same time, the 70s and 60s. And again, you're still coming off of the waves of World War II. And it was a highly nationalistic pro-America, which, Mm -hmm. okay, sure, not necessarily a bad thing. But when it was used to paint a perfect picture and a rosy picture and that this is the only version that exists, that's when that gets bad. I 100% agree. I think it's just hyper-nationalism. And that's the thing is everyone, and this is the irony. I don't know if anyone else wants to comment, but Americans, at least from what I've seen, we're super hyper-nationalist about our country, but when other countries start being hyper-nationalistic, we get scared of it. And it's like, we do the same exact thing. Why are we scared? They're just doing what we're doing. It's human nature, kind of. And that's And that's the other thing is like, you can be patriotic about an area, but you have to know all of its facts and you can't cover that stuff up. And when you're hyper patriotic or super nationalistic and you cover that up, that's where the problem begins. And other countries do the same exact thing. So what are you, what's your message? Are you trying to deviate from that or do you just want to embrace it like everyone else? Personally, I think that there's a big, big chasm between patriotism and nationalism. Um, patriotism focuses on the whole idea of you're, you're being proud of your country. Um, you, you, you appreciate the things that it gives you. Um, but you can still definitely have an idea of we can do better. Nationalism usually tends to lead to things like putting down others and coming up for reasons why said country isn't doing great and usually pinning it on a minority group. It's usually the outcome of a nationalistic standpoint, which it never ends well anywhere in writing and history, anywhere it goes, it ends the same way with people getting persecuted. So I, I encourage people to be patriotic. I encourage people to, you know, try to find the positives in your country, wherever you're living, but also have that idea of, I can still change things. It's not a stuck system. You have, especially in this country, you have a right to go out in protest. You have a right to go out and talk to your senators. If you don't like something, address it. Don't just sit there and comply. People, people tend to have this notion that because we've done things X way for however many years that that's the right way it's supposed to do it or that's the way we're supposed to do this. And again, you hit the nail on the head. It's good to be proud and be happy with everything you know, good that your country gives you, but it's, having, it's maintaining that realistic perspective that again, not everything is a perfect square. Nothing is all good, nothing is all bad. There's, there's true genuine good things and there's true genuine bad things and you're right part of being a citizen of most countries out there in the world means that you have a opportunity to voice your opinion go vote talk to your senators talk to your leaders get out in your community and if you don't like something you can change it yeah how's that work in rhode island <laughs> oh works very well not at all that's <laughs> <one's> episode. <laughs> When the moms, you really want to go on and talk to your elected representatives because I've heard some stories about Rhode Island. 
listen when the mob says it's okay it's okay when the mob says it's not okay it's not okay hey <laughs> buddy cnc was never in trouble he was a good man he's done right by Why do you all. jump right to buddy who says we're only talking about buddy hey i'm just saying he's just a great I'm, I'm, example he's a he's great example. Prime listen, example he was the only one that got found out about hey hey he did nothing wrong wasn't there a play about him I think so. I think there was, so. there was something. Yeah. Show, something. Yeah. 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 They they I, they they definitely <laughs> I just remember driving him. through like down like Smith Street to go home after he died. And it was like the oh streets were aligned with just like huge posters of just Buddy's mm. face. Yeah. Like, he's, I, like, yeah. He's, he's like royalty around here. You I have a guy who was a journalist originally in a past life, and he actually met Buddy twice when he was a kid and i guess like my classmate had and dr ender knows who i'm talking about um had revealed a story about his meat sauce and he remembers is this like code for something no like he legit had a meat sauce it wasn't but it wasn't a sweeney cot a sweeney todd meat sauce it was just a regular meat sauce i guess and i'll take your okay. this kid revealed oh, the meat sauce being stolen and buddy sansa had a conversation with said student buddy sansa also came up to the student when he graduated college from the institution that we're all part of um it said his head in the gown i mean he didn't tell me that stuff he said that but he didn't directly threaten him but he said some other stuff to put him on a different path um but i mean just think about it other people are like that as well it's just buddy's the best known for in, in our lovely little state buddy c and c buddy c and c for life <laughs> what was he the mayor or the senator mm-hmm. he, he was the, the mayor, mayor of providence and then he got thrown he got god and then i remember that mayor again and they yep. got yeah, god again <laughs> The second time people knew theirs were happy to have someone running the city. Right. Yeah. They were like, that's fine, but the city's kind of falling apart and his blood money is pretty helpful. Can we please do an episode on Buddy? The mob. Oh, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) We're going to get horse heads all up in their beds, but that's fine. Maybe we have to go incognito (laughs) for that episode and do it. Thankfully, our our URL is not listed in the episodes. You can't find me. Sorry, I mean to give a detour about Rhode Island. I just find Rhode Island politics very fascinating because I tell everybody it's like New Jersey politics. It's who you know. Mm. All who you know. It's all who, who you know. It doesn't matter if you're like, you know, a breath of fresh air. It's more like, listen, I went to school with his son and his daughter, and I dated his cousin, and I went into business with his nephew. And I stubbed the uh, niece at the same time, you know. That usually means your family if you've gotten that far. Oh, yeah. That point, your family. But, but not but only that, I mean, if you followed anything from an island locally, like, you know, it does, you don't have to be family. You can just be, oh, you're somewhat qualified for this job. Come on over. You're a toe popper. Come on over. We but are the, destroying. But, but the whole history is around Roger Williams. Like, I mean, he pissed off a bunch of people in Connecticut and said, I'm going to Rhode Island. Yeah, I did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Even came- that's where we are today. 
Yeah, he literally just pissed off enough people that they were like, just go over there. Just get out of here. And then the Narragansett people were like, uh, yeah, you're kind of annoying, but like, that's fine. That could be said for the majority of Rhode Island people, you know. It's true. <laughs> the rest of New England just says, what are you? Get out of here. No, they look at you and say, aren't you a part of Massachusetts and Connecticut? Are you no, you're, you're aren't of, you uh, Long York, Island? Aren't you? Yeah, yeah, aren't you Long Island? No. <laughs> I literally, uh, back, in, back in the last, in my previous life, someone looked at me like, isn't Quahog real? And I looked at him like, no, Quahog's <laughs> not real. It's, it's a clam, but it's not real, no. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> Good history lesson. Watch Family Guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh yeah you're gonna learn all your history facts sure. oh yeah <laughs> i mean it's pretty close <laughs> totally. that's every sorry that's every single family in rhode island <laughs> as yeah. someone who lives in massachusetts i can say it <laughs> we we thinking about uh wrapping up here sounds appropriate thank you so much for tuning into this uh episode we appreciate all all of our listeners and the support we received recently, especially on Twitter, Discord, all the lovely people who have uh, revert, uh, reviewed us and given us five stars. We appreciate the hell out of you and keep doing what you're doing. Please rate, download, review, and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast, which is Spotify, Apple Music, whatever the case may be. It's a small and simple thing you can do that has very big ripple effects on down the hall podcast um the down the hall network in a whole uh we would also like to thank dr ender for taking the time to come on down spend some time with us have these nice conversations dr ender if you if people would like to reach you if they have any questions about the research you're doing or any perspective stuff where can they find you first of all thank you for inviting me on, on the podcast it was fun i enjoyed the conversations um, you can find me on Twitter at Ender, at Ender underscore PhD. I mainly do research stuff, so you'll probably see a couple of research pieces that I will publish in the next couple of months on it, and then just thoughts on music and sports, which are really the two things that interest me in life today. So, um, yeah. And are you already published with NCSS, if I remember correctly? Kind Why of. Why did I bring that up? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I read the stuff that you gave me, okay? <laughs> well, you know, the thing is, I do presentations with NCSS and KUFA, which is the research arm of NCSS for the higher ed folks. Yeah, yeah, you might find some stuff there, too. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little more complicated you, that I'll save for another day. I'm not going to tell you which articles, but if you're a history folk and part of the NCSS membership, you can find Dr. Andrew's work yes. in other articles as well thank you if you like to interact with us there are several ways that you can do that you can reach us at our twitter which is at yeah sign operation hist which is very active if you can tell from our we are retweeting our different statuses and what may have you you can also shoot us an email at our gmail which is operation history podcast at gmail.com yes the podcast is part of the actual email itself thank you domain issues or you can view us at our website which is operation history podcast period wordpress period.com 
eventually you would somehow get a hold of us and we will respond to you in a timely manner whenever one of us looks at this. Eventually, all of our sources and show notes will be located on there. We are currently actively working on that right now. So please give us most update all of our information. It may not be up to date. That's totally okay. We all have full-time jobs and we all work for a living. So once again, thank you, Dr. Ender, for taking the time out of your day, and especially after your vacation, to hang out with us, talk with us for a little bit about America's per perspective and how things have kind of shifted and what we hope for in the future. Once again, this is Operation History, and we are signing out. Bye. 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 has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History. This is our 11th. Here we go, ladies and gentlemen. Ready? No. You ready, Dr. Ender? Ready to go. As he'll ever be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Okay. Um, I guess I'll do the intro. We never established that, but. Okay. Okay. I mean, I know, I know I'm coming through halfway anyway, so. Eventually, all of our sources and all of our show notes for this episode and all previous episodes will be uploaded on our website for I all. I swear to God, I'm working on it right now. I swear to God, I am not paying attention to you guys anymore. I swear to God, it's open. Lauren, I wasn't calling anyone out. Okay, he <laughs> says this every podcast. I sense, I, I sense a form of guilt. Oi, oi, oi! Tough oi. crowd. The, it's updated. The show notes are not I, it's, all, <laughs> it's certainly all the way back from to earth day oops <laughs>